Good morning, everyone. My name is Carol Werner. I'm the Executive Director of the Environmental and Energy Study Institute. We are very glad that you are with us here this morning, whether you're here in this room or whether you are watching the briefing online. Uh, I am sorry for the delay. We are uh, awaiting the arrival of Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota, who will be joining us shortly. But in the meantime, we wanted to go ahead and kick off the briefing uh, because this is a very important <coughs> and exciting time, I think, for co-ops. This is a very exciting briefing in terms of the topics that we are looking at. And I think uh, that you, too, will be very, very interested and glad to hear some of the stories that are happening across the country at America's Rural Electric Co-ops. Co-ops are a very integral part of the United States history and their whole role in terms of their development or their, their mission to uh, assist local economic development to represent their members and that makes them also unique as utilities in that they do have members uh, whom they serve that they are owned by their members which gives them a very very special relationship to their members, very different from so many of the utilities uh, from whom many of us probably obtain service. At the same time, it also means that because of this special relationship and what it means to communities across the country, since it was indeed co-ops, that really brought electricity to so many areas across the country uh, decades ago <coughs> in terms of making rural America uh, a vibrant part of the U.S. economy and providing basic essential services. So there are many, many changes uh, in the utility sector, in the power sector. These changes are also occurring uh, throughout the rural electric cooperative system. There are many different kinds of co-ops looking at different issues, being responsive to their members' needs but always driven by the need to provide low-cost, effective, reliable access to power and making a real difference in their communities. And I, a couple things that I want to say with regard to Senator Klobuchar, um, be, uh, as, as we await her coming, is that it is very interesting that she comes from a very, very strong co-op state in terms of Minnesota and that she also serves as the co-chair here in the Senate of the Congressional Farmer Cooperative Caucus, which makes her a very key person to be part of today's briefing in which we are looking at innovative clean energy strategies of rural electric co-ops. In that capacity, she has also had the opportunity to serve on the, um, on the Agriculture Committee. She is also where she has provided much leadership with regard to important conference committees in terms of finally getting a farm bill through in 2014. She has made a terrific mark in the Senate uh, in terms of leadership in so many different areas, including her role as the uh, chair of the Senate Democratic Steering and Outreach Committee and as a ranking uh, member of the Joint Economic Committee and the President's Export Council. She is also a ranking member of the Judiciary Subcommittee. So Senator Klobuchar's voice has been strong. She's been a, uh, a terrific consumer advocate, uh, a leading expert on energy 
And so when she arrives, we will turn immediately uh, to her so that she can address us. And in the interim, what I would like to do is to turn to our first speaker this morning uh, because we think that there are some wonderful stories and we do want to get started looking at those. And for that, we will turn to Curtis Wynn, who is the president and CEO of Roanoke Electric Cooperative uh, in North Carolina. And Mr. Wynn has been in this role as president and CEO of Roanoke uh, since 1987. And, or 1997, and before that he was um, with West Florida Electric Cooperative where he really truly learned the co-op business uh, which has made him the outstanding leader that he, that he is because he was involved in so many different roles learning co-ops from, from every possible aspect. He has been extremely active in many uh, community and development organizations and also serves on the national board of the National Rural Electric Property Association. I am very pleased to introduce Chris Mann. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you, Carol, for that introduction and the opportunity to be a part of this program today and to share with you uh, a little bit about what we're doing at Roanoke Electric Corporation. Um, just to give you some, a little bit of context about our cooperative, uh, we are what one would consider a, a small to medium-sized electric cooperative. Uh, we serve about 14,000 uh, meters in northeastern North Carolina. Uh, the average line density uh, of our system is about seven meters per mile. And if you compare that to the typical utility, whether it's a municipal or an investor-owned company, that average ranges anywhere from 30 to up to 60 meters per mile. So that is pretty much the nature of most electric cars across the country, and we represent that. Today I want to share with you um, about a program that we call Upgrade to Save, and it is funded by the USDA Rural Utility Services uh, Energy Efficiency Conservation Loan Program, what we know as ECLIP. First point I want to make is that the ECLIP program slash the Upgrade to Save is part of our overall strategy at Roanoke Electric Cooperative. And what I'm showing you now is actually our strategy map. I, don't, I won't get into the details of that, but just to make the point that this energy efficiency program is, in, is intertwined and ingrained in our overall corporate culture and our corporate strategy as we try to do what's depicted at the very top of our, our, our strategy map is to make the cooperative difference. As Carol alluded, there, there is a cooperative difference with electric cooperatives. We want to make sure that our members have high reliability, competitive rates, that they're engaged and active, and that they're very satisfied with the service that we bring to them. So this program is an element of making sure that happens, and I'll uh, tie it in with our strategy map in that, in that manner. So what we have is a, what we call a tariff-based approach to energy efficiency. And what that means simply is that um, through the, through, we have a nonprofit affiliate called uh, the Roanoke Center, and, and they 
operate this program that I want to explain to you for the electric cooperative. And in that, we take complete control of, of and we finance the energy efficiency work from start to finish on behalf of our members. Uh, this is a voluntary program, which means that the member has to opt in. They have to ask us to come and serve them. Um, the tariff piece comes in where the, the repayment is made. They're cooperative. It's not a grant program. We do these, pro we do these efficiency, energy efficiency upgrades, and we're paid back by way of a bill tariff. That means we're able to put a charge on the member's bill to collect the funds that we invest in that location. Um, and our location is very important because the, the connection with our program is not with the person or the member, it's with the location. We're treating the, the upgrades as a part of our overall system improvement process so that we can make sure that energy efficiency is, is in that whole mix of, of what we do as a utility. One component of the program is that the, the repayment that, that we charge on the bill is, is that the program is designed so that it never exceeds 75% of the savings that we calculate for the members. And there are methods that we have in place that we're able to predict those savings before we do the measures. And the repayment never exceeds 75% of that. The obligation to pay uh, the for the measure stays with the location. So whoever is at that location, whether it's the first, first person or subsequent members who come into that location are obligated to make that payment back because they are receiving the benefit. So why did we choose a, a tariff-based approach? Um, the reasons are pretty simple for us. Um, first of all, if you look at the demographics of, of, of Roanoke Electric Cooperative, what red means on that map is it means a lot of things, but mostly it means poverty, it means low wealth, it means health disparities, it means loss of population. Uh, so the red, this section is where our territory is. And every, every county that we serve has those issues. So that was one reason. Uh, there's a drastic need. The bottom graph that I'm showing you is, you can't sit in the back, but these are benchmarks that we get from survey work that we do as a, as a cooperative. The yellow um, block is Roanoke Electric Cooperative. And what this, these sections mean are is how much does a typical member pay for electric consumption on a monthly basis? If you look, move to $200 a month plus 46% of our members have bills that are over $200 a month on average, compared to the national average of 17%. So we have, and you may ask, well, why is that? The reason is not because of our rates. We explain that to our members, and we'll be explaining that tonight at the community forum, but it's because of the consumption. And the consumption is driven by the lack of energy efficiency measures in the home. So I hope you can see the, the, the reason we are so excited about the EQIP program and are excited to have this, this program available. The other point I want to make is that previous attempts to put uh, on-bill financing programs together have failed. We have gone through a perpetual cycle of members coming to the office complaining about the, the amount of their bill, and we would go out and do energy audits, explain to them, okay, you really need to do these measures to fix your home to cause your bill not to be so high. But when you get to the point of telling them how much it would cost to do that, the conversation suddenly ends. And the next year when their bills go up, or the next time around, they come back. So this perpetual cycle has gone on for years and years. And we're now at a point now we have a program that can get the members to say yes. 
So getting the members to say yes is, is where we are now. Because the previous attempt to put on-bill financing programs together have failed. We've had very low take rate because previous attempts have involved the members having to take out some type of additional debt to get those measures in place. This program is different in that the cooperative is taking on the obligation for that debt. And th these other measures that we've explained to members all along have been things that would have worked, but they just can't come around to call, well, if, if they would like to come around, most financial institutions, because of the credit worthiness of most members, they don't, they don't pass that measure, that, that threshold to be able to get a loan to do the measures that are needed to cause the bill to be lowered. So we have taken that on and removed that barrier from the members by putting the eclip in place and not causing them to have to take out that obligation. So how, here's how it works. So the member comes and they, we, we determine that the location is some, uh, one that we can do an upgrade. The member pays nothing up front. This, the financing, as I've said earlier, is handled by the cooperative. We will do the measures and they will, we won't do it unless they can see an immediate improvement in their cash flow, as I mentioned earlier. As long as they do their obligation to their part, that obligation um, is there. If, if the measure that we put in place fails or if for some reason we can't fix the measure, their obligation ends. There is no debt, there is no lien on their home, there is no loan for the member. And the other big component of this that we, we, we've been able to pick up is that renters, you can imagine if someone's renting a piece of property and it's not very energy efficient, it's a pretty broad stretch to ask the landlord to make those improvements, to come out of their own pockets to make those improvements to that facility. And that's been a huge barrier for a lot of our members because a lot of them rent properties and they still are obligated to pay the utility bill. But now the landlords are pretty much standing in line because they don't have to take out that debt obligation to do those measures. And that's to the benefit of our members. Except for in the house. 
Uh, we were teasing earlier about sometimes the, the pets are more comfortable underneath the house than our members are inside of the home because of uh, poor duct seating. Um, so that's a, that's a huge way that energy is being escaped from, from the uh, system. Captain? Curtis, could I interrupt you? Absolutely. Senator Klobuchar has arrived, and just as we got your slide back up. So why don't we come back to you and have Senator Klobuchar come to Yes, yes. Great. Thank you so much. Because there's lots more that we want to hear from Curtis uh, about this exciting program. So at this time, we would like to welcome Senator Klobuchar, who, as I said earlier, is uh, providing uh, very, very strong leadership throughout the Senate through uh, her assignments on, uh, on the uh, Senate Committee of Agriculture. Um, she is the first woman elected to the Senate from Minnesota, and she has made a, a wonderful mark in the Senate through her extensive leadership in so many different areas. Senator Klobuchar. Thank you, everyone. It's great to uh, uh, be here with everyone. And uh, sorry, it was a little late. A blue pen exploded in my mouth, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> Luckily, Senator Gillibrand's office is nearby, and her interns assisted me. Um, so thank you so much uh, for the good work of EESI. Uh, and also, thank you for that nice introduction, Carol. I wish I had heard all of it, but um, I want to thank you for that. And I'd like to acknowledge everyone, especially uh, Gary Conant, the Director of Environmental Stewardship at Great River Energy, uh, which is a Minnesota-based electric co-op, uh, as well as the other leaders that are here today. I do bring you greetings from the state of Minnesota, where, in the words of our poet laureate, Garrison Keeler, the women are strong, right? Uh, the men are good-looking, and all the electric co-ops are above average. <laughs> uh, we are actually uh, quite proud of the electric co-ops. Minnesota has one of the highest number uh, per capita of electric co-ops, and it's been a really important part of the energy outlook in our state. And just to give you a sense of our state, uh, we are a state uh, that early on uh, really went into renewable energy in an aggressive way, and it was a bipartisan way. Tim Pawlenty was actually the governor when this happened. It was in 2007, and uh, we passed a renewable energy standard uh, requiring 25% of our electricity uh, come from renewable sources by 2025. It passed the House 123 to 10, the Senate 63 to 3. Uh, it was actually linked some of ethanol, so a lot of the rural groups uh, liked it as well because they were getting ethanol uh, standards at the same time. So we kind of did uh, both things at once, and it worked politically, and it has worked for our state, and we're proud of the work our rural co-ops. It's harder to do when you're a rural co-op uh, to meet those kinds of standards, and they've uh, worked with us uh, to do it. Um, and then Excel, which is our bigger utility, actually had a 30% requirement and was on track uh, to meet that requirement as well. So it's kind of an interesting story and a bipartisan story, something I hope we can start doing a little more of here in Washington. Uh, I really see the states as our laboratories of democracy, to quote Justice Brandeis, uh, and 
You can learn a lot of what the states are doing. I think especially with rural co-op, we have to acknowledge that not one size fits all. Uh, they have very different situations, even among themselves, depending on their size, and we have to look at those needs when we look at federal policy. Obviously, with regard to the greenhouse gas emission standards, I've been working hard to make sure we get credit across state lines. Uh, Minnesota gets a lot of wind uh, from North Dakota, uh, and uh, we, they like to call themselves the Saudi Arabia wind, but so does every state in the country, but in their, their case, it's true. Um, and we also want to get credit for early action because we're a state uh, that did a lot early on. So those are two issues we're working on, as well as working with some of our smaller uh, electric co-ops uh, to make sure these rules work for them. Uh, but other than that, what I have seen is some tremendous work uh, with our electric co-ops um, all over uh, Minnesota. Uh, one of the best examples that I can use is one I re recently visited, which was Steel Wasika Co-op. Uh, and what Steel Wasika Co-op has done, they really, I asked if they've seen it anywhere else in the country. Uh, they've given out free water heaters, which I'll get to in a minute, something Senator Hoven and I worked very hard on, free large water heaters. Uh, for their customers in exchange for them buying a solar panel. This is a true story. And they have, the solar panels are not installed on the houses. They're actually right near the utility building. I went out and looked at them. And for some reason, this get a free water heater thing has really worked. Um, and they have costed it a lot and figured out they're much better off because they save so much money um, when their customers buy uh, one of these, get for free one of these water water heaters, and then they've also figured out um, that they can gain on the solar and that the individual customers will gain um, over a period of only a few years. And so that is just one example of something that you might not see a big electric company do, but a small rural electric co-op is able to respond to the needs of their customers and be our own laboratories of democracy. So Senator Hoven and I uh, got very involved um, in this issue of uh, the water heaters, and uh, that's because we thought this was something that needed to change. Um, as many of you know, demand response programs use off-peak electricity to conserve energy and reduce costs to consumers. Uh, the programs also help electric co-ops manage loads during periods of peak demand and can help integrate renewable energy in the grid. Um, and by enabling power to be stored when renewable sources are not producing power. Uh, the Department of Energy had planned to phase out the water heaters that helped us get uh, to the place we wanted to be with renewables by April of 2015, but what happened was the DOE's rules didn't take into account the value of the water heaters to both consumers and the electric co-ops that serve throughout rural America. And what we have learned, and you all know, uh, is that these water heaters save money uh, optimize energy management, and because the water heaters are energy efficient, the environment benefits. So we had an interesting coalition of the rural electrics and environmental groups helping to get this passed because the deadline was coming and they weren't <coughs> going to be able to manufacture these water heaters anymore. Um, and we somehow attached it at 3 in the morning, this was a true story, when everyone was really tired, uh, along with Senator Shaheen in Portman with their energy efficiency bill, and got it passed just under the wire, and we had a lot of fun working on it, actually, um, for about a week to get it on the bill. And it's an example of bipartisan work, but it's also an example of something uh, that has benefited our small co-ops. Another thing Senator Hogan and I, uh, my neighbor next door, are working on uh, is the Nonprofit Energy Efficiency Act. 
um, just this is more for your knowledge. Um, it's a pretty popular provision. Started out with our churches and synagogues um, and others that have really old buildings, and obviously a lot of them are in rural areas um, and other nonprofits. And what this does is allow these nonprofits uh, to take a, a tax get some tax benefit for installing energy efficient windows or solar panels or whatever they can do to make these older buildings more energy efficient. And you can imagine, especially when you look at like uh, the, the Catholic bishops have made this one of their priorities. And my dream is the Pope mentions it, just kidding, probably won't. I'd like to call out Senator Pope, this is my fantasy. And hoping for their bill that the Catholic Church is very interested in it because they have so many old buildings and this they have um, parishioners and others that really want to do something about climate change and energy efficiency, and by just giving that little extra benefit through this bill, uh, it's just going to be a great gain nationally because so many of these kinds of groups want to add some energy efficiency to the mix uh, in their buildings. So that's something to watch for. It's not something that just is, involves electric co-ops, but I thought uh, you'd be interested in knowing uh, what's going on with that. Uh, other issues um, uh, besides the major energy ones going on uh, that I know you guys care a lot about, I continue to be a strong supporter of uh, rural utility grants uh, and loans and financing, uh, which is so important to our electric co-ops. Um, and I'm continuing to be the chief sponsor along with Senator Vitter of the Build the Lithium Trust Exemption um, uh, with our railroads because that is another issue for rural co-ops. Uh, which has been a huge one. Uh, they're the last, oftentimes the last leg uh, on a train track uh, and pay some exorbitant rates. We call them captive shippers. Um, so uh, we have been working to try to either do that or also um, try to change some rules before the Surface Transportation Board uh, so that these rates can be challenged more easily. Uh, so those are some of the things uh, that I learned walking around and driving around our state. I visit all 87 counties every single year, almost as many as Senator Grassley, but he has 99. Um, so I really have gotten a sense of our electric co-ops. I've been up in buckets uh, with them, uh, repairing lines, don't worry, not me personally. Um, and I've uh, visited many of them. I've visited at their meetings with all of the citizens who are investors, and it really gives you a sense of the different business model of a co-op and how much individual people care. And what I think is exciting from an energy standpoint is that this model where you have individuals who actually are trying to save money for their homes it makes them really interested in energy efficiency. All these studies have shown uh, that the big companies have done is that one way to get people to uh, save energy is if they know what their neighbor's doing, right? They, they may not know their neighbor by name, but they get on the bill, a house that's very similar to yours saved $100 last month because they didn't do it, whether it's washing machine, whatever it is. Um, and with electric co-ops, you have that model baked in because uh, these are people that are in a small area and are really trying to save some money. And so I think it's really exciting as you look at models for energy efficiency, reducing greenhouse gases, whatever it is, going forward, uh, that this is one really great way to look at it. And that's our rural co-ops that we're very proud of in our state and across the country. So uh, thank you very much uh, for having me here. And um, uh, looking forward to getting my next bill passed with Senator Hogan. Uh, we work so well together that the East Grand Forks Herald, which, or no, the Grand Forks Herald, which maybe you guys haven't read, they declared that he and I should take over the Senate. Luckily, Senator McConnell and Senator Reid don't have a, a 
subscription to that newspaper, but maybe they should. Uh, so we're looking forward to our next bipartisan effort, but the water heater was a great fight, uh, the water heater fight, and something that we got a lot of people on board with, and so now we're moving on to this nonprofit issue, which I think will really give us some energy efficiency gain. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. one of those 
qualifying elements that we can invest in. So we're taking the energy efficiency credit that we're creating through this program to offset any investments we have to make otherwise, which is another savings to the cooperative. And of course, member satisfaction is huge, and we feel like we're doing that. Um, just want to say in closing that this is not something Roanoke Electric created. Uh, this model has been around Kentucky, Kansas, are two states that have gone ahead of us. Uh, fortunately, we have one benefit they didn't have, and that is the fact that we have the USDA equip money to finance our programs, which they did have. So we see a stream of financing available to us. It's a huge benefit, and we think that it's going to benefit our members in the long run. We see huge opportunities in the future for other opportunities like community solar, uh, potentially battery storage, or other things we have on the horizon that we can make sure that every member on our system has the opportunity to benefit from those new technologies that come up regardless of their status. Uh, I'm sure we'll have opportunities for questions later, but I think we're going to move on to the other presenters and we'll do Q&A uh, later on. Thank you for your time. Uh, but, but in any case, that's my high school's claim to fame. 
uh, at Gregor Energy, we're a, we're a GNT, that stands for Generation and Transmission Cooperative. Think of us as a manufacturer of electricity, and we manufacture that electricity, and we deliver it to our retail distribution network, and that retail distribution network is 28 member co-ops. They don't make electricity, they distribute electricity to about 700,000 members out there, and those members represent about 1.5 million people in their box. And so we're the manufacturer of the electricity, and they're the distributors. And you can get a sense of our service territory there. It goes from Canada to Iowa, and there's some metro areas. And our co-ops are different. Some of them are incredibly fast-growing, incredibly suburban, and others are agriculture, and others way up in the northern reaches of Minnesota are, are, are very um, uh, resort kind of focused and, 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 and so on. So it's, it's really an inter interesting service territory. You know, at Great River Energy, we're trying to power what we call as a new way of thinking, the new way of thinking of electricity. Electricity is becoming greener and cleaner, and ultimately it's going to become the preferred energy source to power many of our new technologies in our homes and businesses. At Great River Energy, we call it electrification. Electrification has become one of our strategic imperatives. Promoting electrification is empowering us to meet our conservation goals. We have a 1.5% of our annual electricity sales we have to save each year. And so through some of these electrification strategies, we can help reach that goal. It helps us to increase revenue through the selling of strategic energy programs. And it's this crazy notion that not every electric sale for a utility is a good electric sale but some are far better than others. And if we can strategically guide that, we become a better business for it and our members benefit. Engage in efforts that are widely support, widely support uh, by stakeholders. One of the things that we like to think about is when we go forward and try to encourage electrification, we want to do it in a way where we don't raise the eyebrows of legislators and regulators and environmental groups. Is there certain things that we can promote that are good for society? that no one's going to be concerned about. And clearly there are. And some of those that I'm going to speak about briefly are water heating, community solar, and electric vehicles. I start out with this slide, and, and, and I think of this one partly because I'm a juggler. And juggling's difficult. And, and the, the needs of this new electric grid are difficult. It's a juggling act of sorts. You have variable resources. And, and Carol mentioned I've been around this business a long time. And in resources, our generation resources. It used to be that our generation resources were coal or nuclear or whatever. But we knew how they operated. We knew with precision how an electric generator operated. Today we have a lot of wind resources. We've got to meet this renewable energy standard that Senator Klobuchar talked about. We have a lot of wind in our resource mix today. Nobody can predict how those wind resources are going to produce energy tomorrow or next week. It's a variable resource. We didn't have variable resources too many years ago. Solar is another variable resource. Solar can literally change in a few seconds with a cloud cover. Variable resources, variable load. The load is what we do in our homes and businesses. And it used to be pretty state and true how we used energy, but that's changing too, how we use energy. Part of it is that some of us will have our own renewable resources on a roof. And that'll take away from the load that we serve, and it causes this variation in load. The last one is variability in pricing. 
we buy all of our energy at Great River Energy in a wholesale market. And that price changes every five seconds in the real time market. And so is there opportunities to look at your load and adjust as prices are adjusting as well. So that's the juggling act. And the first program that I want to talk about that kind of deals with this juggling is water heating. And boy, Senator Klobuchar set me up well. Think of a water heater as a battery. And by the way, if you're into the electric utility business, the entire industry is looking for a battery. And we're working on some high-tech battery technology. I'll argue that a water heater is a battery as well. A battery, a water heater is a thermal storage battery. And think of a large capacity water heater that Senator Klobuchar mentioned as a battery that can store up to, say, 26 kilowatt hours. That probably doesn't mean a whole lot to you guys, but it means a lot to me. It's a two-day supply of hot water, and at Great River Energy, we have 70,000 of these batteries in 70,000 homes. And those batteries store about a, we call it a gigawatt hour of energy every night. As the industry is looking for this battery, I'll tell you, we have the biggest battery in the U.S. right now. It's in the homes of 70,000 people in Minnesota, and it stores energy each and every night. A smart water heater takes it to another level, and this is what some of the bill that Senator Klobuchar helped us pass will allow us to do in the future. We call it, of all things, a grid interactive water heater. Think of it as, have you ever heard of a smart appliance? Eventually, someday, we're going to have refrigerators and dishwashers and clothes washers that are interacting with the utility. I'll argue that the first appliance that's going to be smart is a water heater. A water heater has something that's rather unique that the other appliances don't have, and it's that ability to store energy. And that's going to become important. Water heaters could be our first smart appliance. Allows more renewable energy to be utilized. In Minnesota, we have a 25% requirement that 25% of our energy come from renewables. In the middle of the night, it blows as much wind as it does during the day. And boy, as a kid, that, that's hard to believe. But we get as much wind energy at night as we do during the day. And our load goes down, down, down in the middle of the night. And so there's this notion that as utilities, we're looking for a way, when the wind's blowing at night, we're looking for a way to store that energy. Keep in mind, we're probably the only business that you know about that has to provide the same amount of product that's in demand at the very same second. Just about every business that you're familiar with has a way to inventory, to store, to warehouse their product. We don't. And so this notion of balancing supply and demand becomes super critical. And this idea of these variable resources like wind becoming more up and down and having something to store that energy when it does becomes critical to a utility. Enhances the value of renewable energy. It's this idea that sometimes there's so much renewable energy being generated in the Midwest that we don't know what to do with it. We have to ramp down wind. We have to ramp down something because the supply is greater than the demand. If you had a fleet of batteries, water heaters, you would have a, big, a way to absorb that renewable energy. If we had it done in a good way, it actually can reduce the carbon footprint of water heating. And of course, we're always thinking of our members as a co-op. That's first and foremost. And you doing this gives us a way to allow them to heat 
make your water for far less cost than maybe the alternative. And the last bullet there can provide ancillary service to the wholesale market. I don't expect you to understand that one. But it's the notion that in the middle of the night, when you're charging these water heaters, these batteries, you can also provide other services to the wholesale market, to the wholesale electric market, that are keen to the wholesale markets and keen to utilities. That's what a grid interactive water heater is. That's why, for years, we were really excited about working with Senator Klobuchar and changing that DOE rule. You know, this is my only really geeky slide. And what it shows is the months of the year. It's a heat chart. And it shows the months of the year. Where on the left, on the right, on the left hand side of the upper right, January, February, March, April, May, June. What it's showing is the prices in the wholesale market for an entire year. And the hours go across horizontally. Midnight's to the left, and midnight the next day is to the right. All I want to show you is that prices change throughout the day. And the red heat map indicating is when prices in the wholesale market go negative. Imagine that. There's hours in the middle of the night where they'll pay you to take electricity. Imagine if you have a battery that can charge in the middle of the night when prices are negative. That battery being potentially a water heater. I want to switch gears now and talk about solar. Our members are expecting that our energy, that their energy comes from a more cleaner and greener resource. Today, about 12% of our energy comes from renewable resources. It goes to meet that requirement that Senator Klobuchar talked about that Minnesota has. And we have to have 25% coming from renewables by the year 2025. In Minnesota, we've built out 24 solar projects. These projects weren't part of that mandate. Our mandate is being met through wind energy, through big wind turbines. These are projects that we've done on our own. They vary in size from 21 kilowatts to 276 kilowatts. They're fairly small if you know that sort of business, if you will. 11 of those 24 are what are called community solar projects. Those are the projects that members can buy into and buy a panel. They may not want the panel or don't have the ability to put panels on their roof, but they can come into the co-op and buy part of this community solar project that in many cases is, is near the co-op or, or somewhere in the, in the area. Our customers are also, members, are also asking for options and choices going forward for their energy supply. And it brings us to another thing that Senator Klobuchar mentioned down in one of our co-ops called Steel Wasika. They've dubbed it the SUNA project. And this SUNA project is really matching community solar with load management. And the idea is, is that they are providing a free water heater if you buy one of their solar panels in their community solar project. Well, what is a, what, what's a free solar panel worth? About probably 1200 bucks. That's what a panel would cost if you bought one in their community solar project. But they're giving it to you free. With, they're giving it to you for 170 bucks. And they're giving you the water you free. And the idea is, is that if you're going to buy into a community solar project or you're going to put solar on your home yourself, you ought to be looking at how you can use electricity in your home. You ought to be looking at, is it possible to reduce the carbon footprint in my home? Yes, you can do that through using electricity, electricity that's coming from a renewable resource. 
And so, in still Wasika service territory, they have a number of members that are buying the panel for 170 bucks, and in that exchange, they're putting in an electric thermal storage wagon. It's a great example of coupling uh, renewables with a storage technology, short of being a real battery. Uh, a couple of, they've got a lot of press to this. It's been kind of fun to, to see the, the, the articles come through. The, the one thing I'll mention on this one is small co-op, big idea. I like that. It's really important that we can have co-ops that are flexible and can do things. The last thing I want to talk is about our electric vehicle campaign. We want to help with the transition to an electric vehicle economy. We're participating with, it, with advocacy groups, state agencies, and car dealerships uh, in an effect to get electric vehicles uh, on the streets, if you will. We call it our revolt campaign. And for those of you that are really sharp, you might see the word love in that revolt. Uh, we've spent a lot of time in the last year or so having uh, a different outings and, and different uh, conferences and different things around electric vehicles. We're keen on them. And then part of the reason that we're keen on them, it's, it's really no downside to electric vehicles. No downside to electric vehicles. For our members, there's benefit. For our business, there's benefit. For the environment, there's benefit. And we see benefit to the local economy as well. And so uh, the offer that we have for electric vehicles goes like this. Purchase or lease a plug-in electric vehicle and you qualify for renewable energy at zero additional cost. We'll provide the electricity to that electric vehicle and of course you're going to pay for that electricity. But we'll make sure that it's renewable energy for the lifetime of that vehicle. And we've got some calculations for that and you can trust that they're there. You may also qualify for a $500 rebate to get that charging station that you need in your home as well. Well, let me finish up where I started. Electricity. I don't think there's anybody in the room that would deny we've got a pretty darn good product. Looking forward, new technologies and new ways to use electricity are going to be nothing less than revolutionary. At Great River Energy, we're trying to stay abreast of those technologies, of what they are, what they can do, and how they can benefit our membership. Thank you. Thanks so much, Garrett. We're now going to go to another part of the country, uh, to the Northeast, and we are going to hear from Ken Colburn, who is here today in his capacity as a board member of the New Hampshire Electric Cooperative. Ken is also a senior uh, associate with the Regulatory Assistance Project, RAP, uh, where he has led uh, numerous state exercises with regard to looking at energy climate policy issues and how best to put that together. Uh, through his capacity at RAP, he has long been involved in helping advise uh, state and local regulators on air quality, environmental, and energy issues. And he also has served as the air regulator in New Hampshire and was the executive director of NESCOM, which is essentially the Northeast Association of State uh, Air Quality Regulators. 
And so we are very, very pleased to have Ken join us today. Thank you, Carol. I'm uh, also delighted to be here and, and to appreciate the, the efforts of co-ops like, uh, like Curtis's and, and Gary's. I'm thankful that uh, I, as a board member, have some good materials because uh, otherwise I'd be, uh, this, this would be a tough act to follow. I also want to echo their uh, appreciation for Senator Klobuchar's uh, efforts, and, and not just hers, but Senator Hovind's, Senator Shapin's, and Senator Portman that uh, have made energy uh, uh, move forward in some constructive ways here on the Hill. Uh, what I want to talk about today is net metering, and we had a situation arise at New Hampshire Electric Cooperative that I, I think might be helpful in other areas of the country as well, or at least is indicative of how co-ops can approach things constructively. As you all know, net metering, which is the process by which uh, uh, solar, typically solar installations are made at residences or, or small commercial facilities, uh, and then they're paid full retail uh, electricity costs for their uh, the kilowatt hours that they provide, uh, has become kind of a contentious area across the country. This is from National Geographic, disputes flare on CNBC, uh, solar firms and power companies battling each other over net metering. In HECO, the Hawaii Electric Company, they're going to cut the uh, solar net metering rates in half. And of course, when you do that, this from Salt Lake City, your, your citizens uh, don't like that idea much. So now the utility, trying to uh, preserve its interests, creates uh, citizen anger. And uh, in Nevada, it says NV Energy wrestles with looming cap. And that was a situation that we faced in, in New Hampshire Electric Cooperative. A bit of background first. Uh, New Hampshire Electric is uh, a little bigger than Roanoke. We're a good-sized distribution co-op. We don't own any generation or transmission. It's about half the state of New Hampshire geographically, not population-wise. Um, important notes there are that we're about 14 members a mile, so about double Roanoke's, uh, but still well short of most IOUs at the 50 or 60 level. Uh, perhaps the most important thing is that New Hampshire Electric is not generally regulated by New Hampshire's Public Utilities Commission. There is a way of regulating the actions of the co-op, and that's to throw bums like me off the board and replace them. Uh, so there's no need for co-op, uh, no need for PUC regulation by and large. We are still subject to state law, of course. And speaking of state law, that's where net metering uh, originated in New Hampshire is typically the case. For those of you who are interested, there are the, the legal sites. Uh, the practical effect was that about 10, 10 to 12 years ago, uh, New Hampshire passed the net metering law. It introduced a 50 megawatt cap in capacity of those uh, uh, of the installable units. Uh, New Hampshire Electric's share of that was 3.16 megawatts, so that was our cap. And net metering payments uh, at the co-op rates vary a lot in New England, as you know. Um, for systems less than 100 kilowatts, and most residential systems are five, six, seven kilowatts, to give you a frame of reference. Uh, full retail is about 13 cents a kilowatt hour. Uh, larger than that, we only pay for avoided energy under the terms of the law, which is about seven cents. The problem is, and you can take this to its extreme, and it illustrates the example, if everybody, all the co-op's power was net metered, then all of the revenue would come in and then all of it would be paid out at full retail, leaving none to answer the phones or maintain the poles and wires. So Houston, there's a problem ultimately here. We were, uh, 
we were cruising along under that law, pretty, pretty uh, successfully, enjoying good growth. And in 2012, we were about halfway there. We figured another four or five years, we'd have to think about uh, what we were going to do when we got to our statutory cap. And then, boom, 2013 hit. And we were very, it was, it was accelerating. And then in 2014, we were virtually at our cap. So just seven or eight months ago, this was sneaking up on the management board was kind of saying, what have you done to us? Why didn't you let us know about this? Well, you can see it snuck up on them too. Uh, and so what we did, I'll, I'll cover, uh, Houston, we have a problem. We, the clean energy advocates in the state were aware of the situation too. This is all public information, of course, so they knew that the, that the New Hampshire Electric Cooperative was nearing its net metering cap. Um, they were initiating legislative efforts to boost the cap, which of course solves the cap problem. It doesn't solve the revenue issue I described. And so we viewed that as, as kind of a, an unimaginative wrong answer. Um, that said, there's very strong support in New Hampshire Electric Cooperative members for net, uh, for net metering. Uh, and for renewable energy generally. Uh, so we couldn't just say, you know, pound sand when we reached the cap. And we had very little guidance. The state law says what you gotta do up to the cap, and then it says nothing. So, so what do we do at that point was the question. Well, happily, the New Hampshire Electric Cooperative Board and management said this isn't a, a problem, this is an opportunity. And without statutory direction from the law and without a regulation from the PUC, we were essentially free to do what we want, which is to say we were free to do what's in our members' best interest. Then the question is, what do our members want? Well, to explore that, the board of management with legal counsel bought a little time, because as you saw from that 2014 graph, we were right at our peak uh, at the cap level. So we bought a little time to up by voluntarily raising the cap uh, about 10%. And then we considered multiple approaches, and you know they're all out there, the various ones that uh, make sense or don't, uh, depending on what side you're on. Fixed charges, feeding tariff, time use rates, so forth. And we met several times with the, the members that were interested in, in this, uh, this issue. The focus of those discussions was essentially how can we have our cake and eat it too. Uh, how can we both encourage the development of renewable energy on the system and at the same time have enough money to maintain the distribution system? What we ended up with, and I uh, hasten to add that all these numbers are, are sort of rounded for illustration because they vary so much seasonally, is historically what we had paid for in terms of full retail was energy capacity. We would otherwise buy that kilowatt hour from the grid, now we're buying it from a net meter, that's okay. So they should get paid for that. We're not paying for transmission, otherwise we'd have to pay, have to, pay to deliver it. So they should get compensated for that too. And then full retail also pays this whole thing. So it pays them back for distribution, but wait, they are using the distribution system and not paying for it. Um, so that was, that was the, the issue that we had to address. Now, what the board did was a, a policy statement at the end of the day that in part said, in addition to New Hampshire Electric quantifiable avoided costs, there are social and environmental benefits to member sided renewables. Some of them, uh, and, and they should be recognized in our net metering program. So what's that mean practically? 
solar benefits are real but hard to qualify, quantify them, let's split the difference. And that's what we did with that four cents. We said there are benefits here and we owe you for them, you provided them, and we do need some money to maintain the poles and wires, so let's split that difference. That's with the small systems. So instead of 13 cents, they get 11 cents. Now, on the larger systems, that you recall, they, we only had, we're obligated on the act to repay them for the energy, avoided energy. We said, well, wait a minute, they're also delivering benefit to our system, those same hard to quantify benefits. So we said, give them uh, a, a cent for transmission and a cent for, for the solar values that they're delivering. We're not saving as much money because we don't have to pay them. But we're still, we still have a pretty healthy allotment for maintaining the poles and wires. And then you notice that our small systems were less than 20 kilowatts, and the big ones under the statute were greater than 100. What about the gap? We created a third category, which is kind of in between the two. Yes, for a larger system, like a commercial system, we'll pay you for the energy that we didn't have to buy from the grid and the transmission. Uh, some for the solar value that's provided, and we still have enough to maintain the poles and wires. So that's where we ended up in terms of the scheme. Now, you might say, okay, that's good. New Hampshire Electric Cooperative got some money out of this deal so it can maintain the poles and wires. What did the advocates, what did the members, what did the PV and net meters get? Well, the, the board policy statement also included this sentence that a net metering program that fairly balances our goals of maintaining, of encouraging member-sided renewable generation with our goal of minimizing cost shifting, cost shifting. That'll be sustainable in the long run if it periodically adjusted as necessary. And if that's sustainable for all parties to keep the poles and wires up, then what's the need for a cap? The Hampshire Electric Cooperative eliminated net metering cap. There is no cap on PV in New Hampshire, in our service territory. That's pretty groundbreaking, we thought. Well, okay, what's happened since? Well, there's our, our uh, former cap, and you can see we met it readily uh, early in 2015. And since that time, what we did was say, so we didn't catch the market off guard, we said we Treat everybody as if they were grandfathered full retail under the cap sites if they got their applications complete and, and into us before May 1st. We received 3,000 kilowatts, 3 megawatts of capacity in one month in terms of those applications. Almost the full cap requirement in the law in one year, actually in one quarter because of that latent interest out there, spurred to get in under the wire. And then you'd say, okay, well, that's good. They were trying to get in under the wire so they could get paid full retail. And after that, it gets croaked, right? Well, no, we've had nearly another megawatt hour submitted since then. So New Hampshire Electric Cooperative, which at the beginning of this year was under three megawatt hours, under its cap, is now nearly, it's over double its cap with nearly seven megawatt hours, seven megawatts of capacity. Um, a pretty nice story to tell. And that, of course, is only so far. We're only halfway into 2015. There were also some, some really surprising, at least to us, uh, serendipities that occurred. One 
is in looking at the data to try to do the analysis to find out where we stood and where we should go, we found to our surprise that those who installed photovoltaics actually increased their electricity usage by nearly half. So some of the money that we were fearful was going out the door was actually, some of it was coming back in, especially going forward with new net meters. We, we're not sure why this is the case. Our best suspicion is that folks in New Hampshire use a lot of home heating oil, uh, heat pumps, mini splits, the new Fujitsu and Mitsubishi devices that you're all familiar with that both heat and air condition, air condition not being too normal in New Hampshire yet, but increasing, uh, are being switched in and old furnaces retired. So we think that, that the HVAC, heat and ventilation air conditioning, uh, is what's driving this increase. The folks want to install solar and mini splits and heat pumps. That's our best guess. Uh, for those of you interested, what are the actual dollars that we're talking about here? It turns out that they're not all that huge, even with six or seven thousand kilowatts of capacity, and even at uh, four cents the full retail rate. Uh, we're only talking about half a million dollars. New Hampshire Electric, from that first slide, is about $150 million company. So that's only about uh, you know, less than a half a percent of our revenue. And that's not counting the 52% that comes back uh, through increased usage. So it ends up being you know, only about two-tenths of a percent of revenue. So nothing we have to worry too much about, but the kind of thing you want to nip in the bud before it becomes a problem, which is what we've done with this story. Uh, very interestingly, I learned at a board meeting earlier in the week that uh, other New Hampshire utilities, all IOUs, are getting close to or in one case have now met their cap too, uh, three or four months behind New Hampshire Electric Cooperative. And so the regulators and the advocacy community and so forth, the utilities themselves are kind of looking to us saying, so what did you guys do anyway? How'd that work out for you? Um, so it, it, it may be the case that New Hampshire Electric Cooperative's policy uh, ends up being echoed in state policy, which reinforces Peter Drucker's uh, proverbial comment about the best way to deal with the future is, is, is to help create it. Uh, the keys to this leadership opportunity, of course, were fundamentally New Hampshire Electric Cooperative's willingness to take initiative, to not just wait and see what happens or for somebody to do something to us, and more importantly, the freedom that we had to take initiative that was, off, uh, that was provided by the cooperative business model. That as long as we are operating in our members' interests uh, and, and not you know, off the ranch, uh, we could do what, what serves them best. And that freedom allowed, it, allowed this initiative, uh, and here we are today. Uh, I have a contact here uh, of the, the woman that oversees this side of the house if you have any interest in talking to real management rather than just 30,000 foot board. Thanks very much. Thank Yet another great story. So we are now going to turn to Brian Katie, who is the Vice President for Legislative Affairs with uh, NRECA, the National Rural Electric Cooperative Association. <coughs> And Brian brings uh, a lot of uh, experience in terms of dealing with, with government relations uh, from a number of different aspects. And he also had previously worked for Senator Baucus up here in the Senate. Uh, so he brings a lot of uh, uh, expertise and, and interest in terms of looking at how policy does indeed matter, Brian. 
Thank you, Carol, and thank you all for being here. It's my opportunity and my pleasure to, be to kind of summarize a little bit about what our three members have talked about uh, this morning and to give you a couple of additional thoughts about what electric co-ops are up to. Um, the senator provided what I would term an outstanding commercial for the electric cooperatives in Minnesota. Nationwide electric co-ops for uh, the NRECA is an association representing about 900 electric cooperatives in 47 states, providing power to about 42 million uh, consumer members. It's about 12% of the electric sales nationwide, but we cover about 75% of the landmass. So the point that our uh, Senator Klobuchar mentioned about the flexibility and the need to look at co-ops and, and, and provide as much flexibility is critical because a cooperative in New Hampshire and a cooperative in North Carolina and a cooperative in Minnesota and a cooperative in Hawaii have very different realities, very different needs, and very different concerns. We are actively engaged, and I would argue we are in front of the curve on things like renewables. That group that I talked of has about 16 gigawatts of renewables either owned or under contract and another two uh, gigawatts under development. If you look at the energy efficiency work that electric co-ops are engaged in, 96% of our members offer uh, some, are engaged in some sort of energy efficiency program at their electric cooperative. 70% of them are offering incentives, much like what uh, what Curtis mentioned in terms of the incentives to try to get participation, to increase that participation, to break down those barriers that prevent our consumer members from actually engaging in this. Uh, the water heater that Gary mentioned is a, uh, yes, that water heater looks like R2-D2, but in reality, the water heaters that many of our members deploy, 600, 700, 800,000 of them around the country in about 235 co-ops, they're a relatively low-tech low tool to accomplish a significant benefit in terms of renewable integration and in terms of meeting demand response, delaying or, or in some cases eliminating the need to build additional generation. They are an important tool, and we are ever so grateful for the passage of S-535. I would thank uh, Chairman Murkowski, uh, Senators Klobuchar, Coleman, uh, Portman, Shaheen, and IOP for their uh, tenacity and their leadership in getting this accomplished. Uh, that has made a world of difference in our ability to continue to develop these programs, to grow these programs, just to replace the water heaters that become obsolete just through the, the ravages of time and, and, and exposure to the water. So I want to encourage you to uh, uh, continue the good work that your bosses are doing. We appreciate the fact that you have uh, an energy bill markup going on as we're standing here speaking. And, and so we appreciate that you took time to come and hear success stories from a number of our co-ops. But I'm confident that there are folks here whose uh, senators represent other states. And we probably have uh, very successful activities going on in those states as well. Would welcome the opportunity to uh, have those conversations to provide an opportunity for a first-hand look at those programs that they have underway and try to grow these programs. So with that, Carol, I will sit down. Thank you all again for the chance to be here. Thanks, Ryan. And as he indicated, I think there are lots of stories from across the country, and it's important to really look at 
different kinds of things that are underway because there are so many changes that are underfoot and we all need to and can learn from each other. Those are huge opportunities. So let's open it up for your um, questions or discussion. If you could just please identify yourself. Do we have anybody who wants to start off? I'm Mr. Gesu, I'm a science fellow in the House of Science Space and Tech. And I had a question for Mr. Wynn. Um, the idea that you can, especially with the rental properties, which is such a big issue for energy How do you get the program to follow the house and not be used? Sure. Well, it all starts. Started, the question. Yes, the question, um, and I'm sorry, your name again. Cindy asked was, uh, how do you get the program to follow the location versus the member uh, and not assign it to, that make that obligation a part uh, of the, the member's obligation? So in North Carolina, as I mentioned in the presentation, we have the Renewable Portfolio Standards Law that we have been following for the last four or five years. And in that, we, we were able to, through, as Ken, I think Ken or, or Gary mentioned it, as cooperatives, we're not, in, in many states, we're not regulated by the Utilities Commission. We make sound decisions based on what the members will tolerate and what's, what's good with that. Uh, but as a part of the Renewable Energy Portfolio Centers, we were able to capture the additional cost for putting those, those standards in place, like solar projects that cost additional dollars. We were able to set up tariffs to add an additional charge and separate it on the bill. So that sort of paved the way, in my mind, in our minds, for doing the same thing with our energy efficiency measures that we're doing in this program. To it's, it's something we're investing in at the location, and it's an additional charge. So we're we're saying it needs to stay with that location, and and by way of a tariff, and and whoever's benefiting from that will have to to make the repayment back to the utility. So. Um, we just we, we felt like it's, it needed to be separated, needed to be displayed, and and, and it's something that our our we haven't gotten any pushback from from the legal standpoint. And I think that's really important in terms of thinking about how this provides a really expanded opportunity for a lot of co-op members by being tied to the meter as opposed to. Um, and to therefore that bill as opposed to um, uh, an individual. It makes a big difference in terms of meeting eligibility standards, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, over here first, and, and then go ahead. Uh, thank you. Um, my name is David Elsner from the Energy and Policy Institute, and I have a question for Mr. Colburn. Um, it's, it's two parts. One is, did New Hampshire Electric Co-ops actually study the cost of allowing net metering beyond the cap or did you just split the difference, as you said? And then, if, you know, based on that calculation, what's the threshold where New Hampshire electric co-ops would have to change the payback for those net metered customers um, from the, you know, 11 cents down to another level? Uh, we, we, yes, I'm sorry. The, the question was, did New Hampshire electric cooperative and we're doing this figure out where the the intersection uh, was where net metering would create a real problem for the electric cooperative versus the repayments of net meters. Um, and forgive me, the second part of that was... Well, if, if there is a threshold, you know, if you took it out to the end, let's say 100% of customers installed solar on the rooftops, 
would you be able to operate the wires and poles uh, with that um, payment that you calculated? Uh, we, we did not um, do that to the degree that, that you characterized. Um, we were mindful as we did the research on both what has been done elsewhere and what the costs and benefits were and what the options were for solving the problem. I mentioned fixed charges, which are pretty popular to know. Uh, and we weren't really satisfied that any of them got their arms around the benefit side particularly. Uh, as you know, many of the solar folks say that they often deliver at peak, that there's a lot of emissions benefits and externalities that are not counted in typical cost-benefit calculations today. Uh, we were mindful of that didn't want to ignore those. At the same time, they are hard to quantify. And so that's why we ended up, at least for the time being, saying split the difference. So we did not actually calculate that point. And you note in my uh, quote from our policy statement that we indicate that the opportunity to revise as necessary was built into the policy. So we can take a, a closer look at that going forward if and when it's necessary. Seemed like a, I mean, this, this was on our plate, the cap was exceeded. So we needed to do something quick, and this seemed like the, the most prudent path. And it appears that there's a huge demand to go forward to. It doesn't seem to have quelled the <laughs> Okay. Uh, I'm not sure who best to address this, but I noticed um, Elon Musk is suing the Salt River Co op in Arizona because they slapped a $50 a month fee on solar users. I wonder if you had any insights to that or any latest updates or what the heck went on there, why they felt like they had to shoot back a $50 a month fee on solar installers. So the question is with regard to the salt rivers, and this is becoming an issue across the country in terms of fixed fee uh, that is being put on with regard to solar. Yeah, we went on there, and what would be a reasonable monthly fee? Well, uh, I, I'll take a crack at it,
developing a plan to accommodate the development of new resources that are brought online and to do that in a, a way that their members uh, are comfortable with. Ken mentioned something in his remarks that uh, many of our co-ops are not regulated by the state, but they are regulated by their membership, which votes on an annual basis for the directors that govern that cooperative. And so they do have a vote, and, and they many of these are very, uh, very, very much contested elections, and it's to determine the policy over how the cooperative is governed and what direction <coughs> the leadership of the cooperative votes. Okay. Right. Other, other questions or comments? Yeah, thank you. I'm Sebastian Rodriguez from Columbia University. Very interested on knowing the perspective of the different clubs in the sense of the information technology behind what is needed to control these water heaters, solar panels, and so on. Because there are relatively small organizations, how you finance that and how difficult it is to choose technology. Uh, I, I could speak to that, and Gary could probably follow up on it. Uh, one of the, the great things and unique things about electric cooperatives is the cooperation among cooperatives. It's one of our seven principles. Um, primarily, in, in the cooperative world, we have two um, information technology, two major information technology providers that provide all the systems that we need to run our business, and most of us are members of those two information technology companies, and we own those as a co-op, which, which is a, a, an aggregated way to develop the technology to get the research and development that's coming up through the ideas and needed solutions of all of these separate cooperatives. And quite frankly, we have, our information technology uh, development has exceeded most of our counterparts, greatly exceeded in terms of flexibility, the, the nimbleness, and, and capabilities of what we can do, such as net metering, uh, uh, not net metering, but such as, as on-bill financing, prepaid metering, uh, smart metering, a lot of things we've been doing for decades that uh, I know personally that some of the investor-owned companies that, that we're right next to have really not gotten to yet. So um, we're fortunate to have this, this type of flexibility in people in place within cooperative nation that can help us develop the systems we need. We're well advanced in our technology. Uh, this is Gary, and I'll take a, a, a technical tack to that. And by the way, there's a blonde-haired guy playing with his phone right now that is an expert on control technology. Raise your hand, Keith. Talk to him. But, but in either case, how do we control water heaters? Well, you know, the way we've controlled it up to now is, is simply with an on-off switch. And we control those on-off switches with a radio frequency. So we broadcast a signal that goes out to our entire service territory. And, 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 and the receiver on the side of the house picks that signal up and shuts the water heater off or turns it on. Pretty simple technology. But going forward, the idea is, is that we're going to have a, a far more advanced technology. For example, uh, Honeywell has a thermostat. And, 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 and we're interested in thermostat technology to control an air conditioner, which, by the way, is probably the largest load in a home nowadays. And so with Honeywell or any other thermostat manufacturer, you can, through a Wi-Fi, control the air conditioner raise the thermostat level, lower it. In that same smart thermostat, there's the ability to control a water heater. The water heater of the future is going to have, I hate to do this to you guys, an electronic thermostat in it. 
And so we're going to be able to put a little device on the water heater that's listening for a Wi-Fi signal in the home. And when it picks up that signal, it does what we ask of it. We could send that signal to that water heater multiple times in an hour. And so it gives us that ability to control that water heater. That means beware of your appliances. Take the charge. <laughs> <laughs> There's that. <laughs> but it's all very, very exciting in terms of all of these new approaches that are being Thank you all very, very much for being here. Appreciate it. Appreciate it.